HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Culture and Flavor. On today's episode, uh, we are going to talk with the amazing, the incredible Todd Richards from Chicago, South Side of Chicago to be exact. He is the culinary director of Jackmont Hospitality, mastered his culinary skills, studying under some of the industry's most renowned chefs. He is so well respected in the restaurant industry and one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, he lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm so excited just to have this conversation conversation with him today. Um, just two native South Side of Chicago residents to talk about our journey in the food and the culinary world and just our memories of the South Side of Chicago, why we migrated to the South, well, back to the South, and um, all of his amazing projects that he's doing right now. Todd, welcome to Culture and Flavor. Zella, thank you so much for having me. It's um, it's so great to to be on your show. I think you were on my show at one point in time, and then I said Zella take over my show, and then Zella said I want my own show. It's like you know what, you damn right, you need your own show. So this is so <laughs> so much fun. Uh, I am so glad to be here, and so proud of what you're doing as well. Thank you so much, Todd. Um, I want to just, you know, start the conversation just, you know, about growing up on the south side of Chicago um, and just really painting the picture of what that was like for you. And, you know, I'm going to ad lib and just, you know, add my own two cents. Uh, what, you know, time period are we talking about when you grew up on the south side of Chicago? You know, growing up on the south side of Chicago, you know, it's really crazy because I don't think people really know how expansive uh, the south side of Chicago is when you think about that it goes all the way to the border of Indiana, uh, as well as go as far west, uh, you know, past, you know, Halstead and Ashland and Damon and Western, that uh, south side of Chicago could easily be just a city by itself in, in terms of size of the metropolitan area. And then inside the South Side of Chicago, you have so many different neighborhoods um, of all different types of people that migrated to uh, the South Side. 
my family uh, was more so around the meatpacking area of uh, Chicago. Uh, that's where they landed. My family came out of Ohio over there to that side. And then we migrated even further south where my grandmother was on like 61st and Justine. Um, and then south of that, you know, I grew up on 101st and Crandon outside of Jeffrey Manor over by Trumbull Park. And so it was really great to, to be on that side because I was a little bit closer to the lake uh, with Rainbow Beach right around the corner uh, from, from us and things like that. So I got to, you know, have that uh, inside of the South Side of Chicago field, but also spend a lot of time on the beach uh, in that area. And of course, you know, most people don't know if I'm um, showing our age here that the Blues Brothers, when it was shot in Chicago, that bridge right there on, on Calumet Fisheries is right there as well. And that bridge when they jumped over was the fish market. And we used to visit that fish market all the time. So it was really a great thing to, to eat there and eat, you know, fried scallops, uh, frog legs, things like that as a kid. You're bringing back so many memories. Right. Um, <laughs> you, I'm we just like, oh, Calumet Fisheries. Yeah, Calumet we Fisheries, haven't even talked about because I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the stock, the, the stockyards. Um, my uh, people, and I, I, you know, I also want you to touch on that, but my people migrated from New Orleans. You know, they took that train from New Orleans uh, to from Mississippi and from um well, my mother's side from North Carolina, they went to Indianapolis and this was during the great migration. So we are the grandchildren of um, the South. Right. And, you know, the South side was a really unique place during the, you know, from the I think the 30s until the 90s, until um, at least, you know, hundreds of thousands of us left and re repatriated back to the South. Right. Um and the stockyards, you know, the, the stockyards in Chicago and the Bridgeport neighborhood, and some of you all probably have read The Jungle, uh, right. which is a classic book that really captures what Chicago was like during that time. And the stockyards were viable jobs for African-Americans during that time and for Eastern European immigrants who moved. But, you know, we have a strong Polish history, Eastern European history in Chicago. And, you know... I would love to for to hear more about, you know, just your roots in the South and why your ancestors move or your, you know, your grandparents really moved to the South and why they, I mean, from to the North and why, you know, they decided to do that. Well, I have, you know, of course, uh, my family has two sides. So my mom's side of the family came out of Alabama and went through the Ohio's uh, up through Tennessee, Kentucky, to the Ohio's, and then to Chicago. And then my dad's side of the family came out of New Orleans, you know, that area as well in Louisiana uh, that you speak about. And so it was really a, a great thing to understand the way that we ate because we ate differently because my parents grew up differently. But really what attracted um, my mom's side of the family, how my great, great, great granddad got there was uh, he was a butcher. And I, here it is, you know, I'm a chef. I'm thinking I'm the only butcher in, in our family and, you know, I'm strutting like a peacock. And next thing you know, my, my aunt told me that, well, you know, your great, great uh, granddad was a butcher and he, he 
uh, left Ohio to go to work in the Chicago stockyards. So, wow. you, you know, so you think about these things that you inherently, you know, have a comfort level in doing, but you don't know why. And to find that uh, history out, it's just so amazing to me to know that, you know, that I have a lynch of, of, of butchering and um, things like that. Now, my dad's side of the family, you know, coming from Louisiana, also took that train, you know, uh, up there and they went direct. So they had a direct route from Chicago to Louisiana, where my mom's family stopped in many different ways. So even understanding, you know, using like ancestry to to research that, you know, a lot of my DNA comes from all those regions in a sense of you see so much Midwest, so much uh uh, Tennessee and Kentucky uh, in my DNA, um, and and a little bit of Louisiana, but you see that so prevalent in mine. But it tells me a great story of food and things like that, uh, because it's so interesting the way that my family cooks uh, compared to you know my dad cooks rice one way, the only way, and my mom will cook rice in many different ways, uh, because there's a lot of different ways to prepare rice along along the way. You know, that's a brief history of it, but in even in more detail, you know, the arguments that my parents had were about things like rice, where my dad only cooked rice one way and my mom, you know, would always overcook rice or something like that because dad would buy, you know, you know, long grain rice and my mom was used to cooking short grain rice and things like that, which was great for me because I loved to eat rice as a kid. So I had two pots, you know, of rice on the stove every every single time. My, you know, it's, it's so, I mean, we've had these discussions, you know, um, we've gone down a rabbit, rabbit hole, just talking about, um, our roots and just, you know, finding out like, oh, this is why I'm in food. This is why I've come back to reclaim, you know, my people's legacy. Right. And I just remember, you know, looking in the archives here in New Orleans and seeing my ancestors being listed as cooks in the 1830s and 18. 60 census and then thinking about my grandmother who I never met who had a green thumb and you know she took that to Inglewood in the south side of Chicago when it was mostly eastern european and you know she was you know growing and gardening and and preserving and being able to talk to my 90 89 year old aunt about that you know was also you know just revolutionary for me. So I'm sure you felt the same way when you found out about, you know, being a butcher, your family's being a butcher and, you know, and just reclaiming that, right? And being in the South, coming back to the South and realizing, wow, you know, this is why I'm doing, this is why I'm so passionate about this moment, you know, because we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And recently I was in Chicago and I drove past Limbs, famous- most famous, <laughs> one of the most famous barbecue spots in Chicago. And I would love for you to explain to our listeners about the history of rib tips, because we talked about the stock stockyards and, you know, just tell us more about limbs, about rib tips, the blues, because I even wrote an essay for your uh, <laughs> book that's coming out right. about the Blues Brothers. You know, it's all connected. So please talk about that. Well, you know, the great thing uh, about barbecue is that uh, it is a place where people can gather at all, you know, times of night. And it's without judgment, uh, except for by what you order. And uh, I think Chicagoans, uh, especially black Chicagoans, uh, when they order, you can get a half chicken, uh, you can get wings, 
you can get ribs. But if you don't get rib tips, then we know that you're really not from Chicago. That's 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 the first that's the first you know litany test. You know, the other test might be which sauce you order. You know, are you getting mild, you know, or are you getting hot, you know, hot, you know. Uh, I always did half and half, but you know, I'm partial because dad made, you know, hot barbecue sauce. But the thing about Chicago barbecue what makes it first of all unique is the pit itself, the aquarium pit, because it's made out of glass, you know, as well as metal. And most people when you say aquarium pit, what do you mean? It says it's actually like looking into an aquarium, seeing somebody, you know, you know, smoke meats. And it's charcoal based and, and not necessarily wood base. You know, the, the smoke comes from them actually, you know, dousing the coals with either mop waters, you know, which is seasoned uh, uh, water or spraying water directly on the coals if there's flame. All the smoke and rich flavor comes from that. And it kind of makes sense, though, when you think about Chicago and the demographics of, you know, of the trees and things that are around there, that the woods that are in that area burn really fast and really quick. So, you, you know, you could not smoke meats for a very, very long time because the wood would burn so, so quickly. So but charcoal naturally burns slower. And that's one reason why, you know, that's really unique to Chicago. But also what makes it unique is actually using rib tips because most people do not separate uh, the tip from the actual spare rib. And you go on the north side of Chicago where you will see, you know, items like spare ribs or even baby back ribs. Um, that's very unique to the north side of Chicago. Well, rib tips are, are a classic, you know, black Chicago food. And it is, to describe it, it is probably about 80% meat and about 20% gristle. Uh, but the gristle, what it does is that it keeps the food, uh, keeps it moist and also helps as a tenderizer uh, for the rib tips and it allows it to actually cook faster. So you're not cooking it for as long time as we would compare to in the South, where they say low and slow. I would say that Chicago barbecue is more of a medium heat. So the cooking process is a little bit faster, but the, it's more intense because the aquarium pits actually don't allow for evaporation like um, a, a wood or metal uh, pit would do so. So it's a little bit technical, I'm saying here, but that's the other part too. And then then you think about, you know, all of us coming up in the stockyards, you know, the the, the rib tip was actually just a piece that no one really desired uh, to have mm -hmm. because of the amount of gristle and things like that. Now, my dad would tell you that there's two different types of rib tips. Um, the one is from the bottom of the spare rib and then from the back of the spare rib as, as well when you get to that smaller end of that rib. They used to cut that back off. It looks like a piece of flank steak, but it actually is flank rib. So um, that was something that they did probably up to about 1960, 1970. After that, they used to leave that on. We see it in the stores now, you'll see that back flat meat on the back of the spare rib. Uh, but that really used to be part of rib tips as, as well. And then sauce. Now, sauce might be you know, depending on which neighborhood you came up in, that might be a little bit different, whether it was um, like open pit was a great sauce that people use a lot. But but Lim's sauce was, you know, really had a good amount of vinegar in it, which I think was really the best way to serve with pork dishes. Open pit, you know, you can put that on chicken, whatever. But Lim's sauce, that mild sauce, you know, when you got it right mm. and you mm -hmm. dipped it in there and they brush it and then it caramelizes on top of those rib tips. Um, and it's definitely a 20 napkin job, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Another thing is you judge people by is like if you see somebody pick a rib tip up with a fork, you know they're not from Chicago. 
true. Um, mm. You know, that's sacrilegious. You know, it's like you just don't you just don't do that. And then uh, white bread has to be white bread. Nothing fancy. No wheat bread. You know, no, no rye. None of that has to be white bread and has to stick to the sauce. Yeah. Coleslaw, I don't, I already know what coleslaw was for. I think they, that little um, uh, uh, paper cup of coleslaw they used to give there. <laughs> about two, you know, it's like, is that, is that part of Sunday communion? I mean, what is? Listen, what is that? listen, that, that, that's for that's for the vegans, okay? The old right. school vegans. <laughs> to not make you feel bad, you know. Yeah. But I mean, it's so many memories, you know, and not just talking about limbs, but Leon's barbecue. Um, now, I mean, Leon's a- was different, though. I think it's a, in it my was. in my aspect that they had the accordion pit, but they were they were different though too. I think they. Uh, was a little bit sweeter, in my opinion, than 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 limbs. And then limbs sausage, that hot links mm. that limbs had was. Child, I listen. mean, it mm. was snap mm-hmm. when you break it in half. It was so so it's a perfect sausage compared to anyone else. Mm-mm-mm. You bringing back so many memories, and I, like I said, <laughs> you know, I drove past and I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> So the last time I was there, I, I uh, you know, stopped. I stopped I here. Stopped. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I did stop. And then on the back of the car, you know, on the trunk, you know, we're sitting there, you know, you, you, you put, you open the bag, you tear the bag open, put it on the back of your trunk, you just open it, you just start eating, eating right there. So mm, those were good times in uh, Chicago. And, you know, when I think about Maxwell Street, right, um, you know, there's a scene in the Blues Brothers that depicts classic Chicago before it, you know, became, you know, completely different from how it is now. Um, but I can remember in the eighties, I was a little girl and my dad would go to this, uh, tailor shop, you know, and he would get his, his suits tailored. And Mm -hmm. I can't remember, you know, it was a a mostly Jewish owned, um, you know, stores, but it was a bustling open market area. And you could see the old blues man on the corner from Mississippi, from Arkansas, playing the harmonica, playing the guitar, you know, and it was just an amazing scene to see. And now it's more, you know, it's all owned by UIC and it's completely different. And there's no, nothing like that today, but I cherish those memories. And my brother would always say, you know, if you go to a barbecue joint in Chicago and you don't see a pimp preacher and a teacher, (laughs) leave. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is no good. You know the thing about Maxwell Street, though, which was unique, um, also, is is that um, you know bartering was just as much uh, or just as uh, important as having cash. That mm-hmm. you know that just because you didn't have enough cash does not mean that you could not buy what you need to buy. You know mm-hmm. there was ways to trade. There was an economic system that happened in Maxwell Street. That really proved that, you know, through social and economic uh, uh, norms that, you know, those uh, stereotypes were erased because the answer was never no. It was always a way to provide. It was always the way to find delicious food. You know, the smell of onions on everybody's grill. You know, a hot dog, you know, was a real hot dog. The polo sausage, you know, actually snapped. Uh, but the freshness of the tomatoes or the cucumber that went on that hot dog, you know, was was paramount. You know, no one served you a mushy tomato on their, on their hot dog. Um, you know, the green relish, yeah, it was dyed green, but I mean, but still, I mean, it had bite, it had texture, it wasn't soft and mushy. So there was a quality of food that we were being taught in the simplest form of a hot dog, you know, where, you know, those tomatoes had to be absolutely ripe and perfect or no one will go to your stall. Those things, you can't, you can't, you cannot 
teach those things uh, to a child, you know, just by doing classroom. It was a way to experience life outside of your own neighborhood. And you saw every different group of people walking around and they were all centered around, you know, uh, finding great bargains, finding things that they were unique and also delicious street food, uh, which is becoming far and far uh, removed from American culture uh, to this day. Which is really sad because, you know, you have to you go to other countries and street foods, you know, are alive, you know, and there's some cities that are, you know, trying to creating policy and, you know, infrastructure and urban planning where it's in part of, you know, their culture, which I, which I would love to see every city, you know, we, we can't lose that. I mean, we've lost majority of it, but I would love to see, you know, that come back. I mean, it's but difficult. I, and like in Atlanta, you know, we don't have a food truck scene because we've regulated it uh, so tightly that it's impossible to make it a profitable business. Uh, and when you do, when you legislate, uh, capitalism out of society, then you know that there is something inherently wrong with the policy. Yeah. Yeah. And when I think about, you know, some of the so old soul food classic restaurants in Chicago, and I think about Army and Lou's, mm -hmm. I think Queen about Isola's, Queen mm -hmm. of the Sea, Gladys's. Gladys's, yeah. I remember being little girl and, you know, my parents would go there and have meetings and, you know, Mayor Harold Washington would be there, you know, Muhammad Ali before, when he was Cassius Clay, you know, all <laughs> right. the, the greats were at Gladys's. And it was one um, journalist who wrote about the article and gave a food review. You know, this was back, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s, and it shut down. And so that the, the generations that could have, you know, taken the torch up, it's gone. So you don't know what happened to those pictures on the wall or the recipes, you know, and those recipes probably went to the grave and you don't know what happened to those famous photos that were, you know, part of our culture. How did you, why did you decide to move to Atlanta and revive, revitalize this culture and tell your own story about growing up in Chicago and be, and connecting it to the South? So, T tell me a why you left and went to Atlanta. Well, you know, it's really um, understanding, you know, first the part about the soul food restaurants um, in Chicago and the parallels to the South. Um, those were uh, epicenters of meeting place, you know, for civil rights movements, um, for communication, for voting, and also uh, a way to uh, unite the neighborhood as, as well. And those uh, locations, uh, unfortunately, became part of gentrification. And, and you really have to understand, you know, people have to understand what gentrification really starts with. And it starts with taxes, you know, taxes on businesses, taxes on uh, land and things like that is the first uh, sign of gentrification happening. And when the taxes outweigh the mortgage or the rent of locations, then you're definitely going to put someone in economic failure really, really quickly. The important thing for me was, is that when I got to Atlanta and I came from Freaknik and I'm proud of it. You know, I'm a Freaknik baby. You know, I let's go Freaknik. You know, <laughs> I came down here for a party, you know, I snuck I down. I wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> right? You know, saw all these beautiful people. I was too young. Like me, right. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the look. Like I told my mama I was going. I told my mother I was going on a uh, on a college. You know, I was in high school. I was going <laughs> right. on a college trips. <laughs> right. 
Well, you did, it, it was a college trip, all right, you know. But it, it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, it, there was a lot of uh, education that went on through Frignic, too. That's a whole nother conversation. But when I got here, you know, and I started in the culinary field, and what was really uh, obvious to me that my first job when I went into the hotel, it was Occidental Grand Hotel, now it's the Four Seasons Hotel, that the chef de cuisine there asked me, what was I going to cook? Uh, was I going to cook fried chicken, you know, mac and cheese? You know, why was I here uh, compared to this fine French food or fine Italian food that this hotel was being built on? And so it taught me shame uh, right away that I should be ashamed of our food because it does not match up to, you know, the French and all these other cuisines. But then as I became, got more experience, I started to see that the same techniques that my dad was doing, my mom was doing, or my family was doing, was the same techniques that these, you know, this lauded French cuisine and Italian cuisine was doing. And then when I got to, uh, you know, my uh, first AAA Five Diamond Awards and was on the stage and I was the only one that looked like me on the stage, I knew that I had to change something um, because I knew that there was cooks out there that looked like me that were colossally better than me because I was still learning myself. And it would have been improper for me to uh, take the entire spotlight and not a spot like the people that came before me uh, and B, build a legacy of people to come after me uh, in order to do so. So, you know, the behind the scene works, you know, that I've done, you know, with James Beard Awards and things like that, you know, people will say to me, uh, well, you've been nominated, but you never won. And I tell them, so you just don't know how many times I've won. You know, you just don't know how many times that people that I know that came out of my kitchen or people that I have influence on that actually went on to win, um, you know, that who call me, you know, at three or four in the morning or send me messages on Facebook that have won, you know, talk, asking me about recipes and food costs and things like that. I've won so many times, you know, it, it's it's really the way that I believe that I am fortunate enough to understand numbers and food and can shape the community of African-American chefs so that they can continue this long tree of cooks uh, and chefs and restaurateurs and revitalize our food ways in our own neighborhood. I think also that's one of the reasons why I loved your book so, so much. Um, you know, a lot of people you know, there's so many misconceptions about people born and raised on the South side of Chicago and not understanding the South side of Chicago because of popular media, media, you know, focusing on the violence, right. And the negative stereotypes that come out of Chicago, but you have to, I want our listeners to understand, you know, as a Chicagoan and, you know, as we grew up, you know, our memories, as much as it is soul food, it's also Puerto Rican cuisine, eating jibaritos, you know, um, arroz con gandules. I remember when my grandmother died, you know, my, um, my, you know, comadre, my mother's um, friend, you know, made all Puerto Rican food for the the repast, you know, um, mm -hmm. Mexican cuisine. We grew up eating tacos. We grew up eating German food. We grew up Absolutely. eating all of these different kinds of food, you know, and now when you go to Chicago, it's like this explosion of Jamaican jerk cuisine. And that comes from the culture of like 63rd Street Beach with all of those, you know, food vendors outside, of course, illegally. But, you know, we find we try to find a way to, you know, 
push our culture forward, right? And then for you going down and moving to Atlanta and, you know, training in the French cuisine, but you come from a diverse palate and a diverse city. I definitely would would say that 1000%, you know, and I grew up on the South side, but, you know, closer to the Southeast side is really where, where I, you know, I was. So I grew up, you know, near Avenue K, which is really starts Latin town and, and, you know, always ate tacos and it was nothing for my family to go and pick up some tacos and go to a soul food place and pick up some collard greens and yams. And that would be a meal, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. for us, you know, and rice culture, it was always prevalent in my family. So, you know, just getting, you know, red rice and beans was part of it. And the thing is, you know, you alluded to the, the, the next book that I'm writing. I'm really talking about that, that, you know, that when you look at things like sofrito, that what separates sofrito is a pepper, you know, that Puerto Rican, DR, Haiti, all of them have it, but we're talking about different peppers that they use in their sofrito. Or the fact that in Haiti, you know, that lemongrass is one of the most prevalent crops, you know, that people would never think comes out of Haiti or that the use of ginger or, you know, the fact of African cuisine or Mexican cuisine, we talk about mole being a mother sauce, which comes right out of Africa and the ground peanuts or the ground pumpkin seeds and things like that. That universally we're tied. The only thing that is separating us, it might be an ingredient that can only grow in your area, but the technique is so sound and so still there. I mean, tell me the difference between eating a pita and eating a taco. It's you're talking about just the way that it's leavened. You know, you know, especially when you get the flour, you think about corn, you know, you know, corn uh, tortillas, you know, the technique is still the same. What's the difference between grits, you know, and fufu? You're talking about the coarseness of it. Uh, Why we use cornmeal to fry things and use flour, you know, on other things. And you think about the Mexican cuisine in tacos, where some is flour and some is corn. So the the things is that, you know, we might be all different shades and hues, but our techniques and food really tells a different story that we are uniquely, you know, the same. And that universally we say that we're minority, but we're only perceived to be a minority minority in this country where people who look like us are the majority of the people in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I want to go back also to our love for Chicago house music because you left uh, Chicago to go to Atlanta as a DJ. And, you know, tell us about just 
Chicago house music and link it to food. I would love to hear you just talk about that. Well, you know, so let's think about blues, you know, in the sense of what blues is and blues is capturing a, an emotion. Um, and then you think about um, uh, the explosion of what they consider soul music and things like that, which comes out of that same beat. And you think about the church where the church and soul music is equally tied. And it's the feeling that, you know, that enlivens you. And it's all based on the drum and on that bottom. And you think about our food. Our food has a lot of bottom, has a lot of depth and character, like our root vegetables, the way we do it, the way we stew things for a long period of time, where it has so much concentrated flavor. And then you think about music and, and how those two things Things are are uniquely tied in that feeling, but house music is a little bit uh, different in a sense that it builds up for a long period of time, and then next thing you know, you have this you overcome with this feeling of almost like ecstasy because it requires you to move your body in ways that you never thought about doing before. You know, if you say, you know, religious terms of like it's a spirit inside of you, it is because it starts with the base. It starts with the driving force, you know, that that's inside of you. And then also the sampling. Now we're talking about, you know, hip hop, you're talking about sampling, uh, you know, the era in which I grew up, you know, with these like, you know, Ron Hardy, Frankie Knuckles, you know, oh, man. Family, Jack Master Funk, you know, Chippy, mm. uh, Maurice Joshua. I can go Gene Hunt. Uh, I can mm-hmm, go. With mm-hmm. and, and I still probably have one of the largest records collections, you know, known is that the edits of the repeating of that same spiritual belief, those edits will put you in a trance. And it was almost, if you think about Haiti in the sense of voodoo, where you're just uplifted and there's no care in the world. And, you know, you spoke about gang culture in in Chicago. And when we had those house parties and you will find, you know, Vice Lords, Disciples, Blackstones, all there, there was no sets. Not yes, in there. Yes, there were no sets. It was Not our there. sacred place as teenagers to go mm-hmm. and listen to music and, and and to be about a culture. And house music is a culture. It is a feeling. It is a movement. It is a sound. It is a history. And, and it's still rooted, though, in classical music, the way that things are either sampled or the way items are produced. And coming to Atlanta, Atlanta already was starting to touch on it when I first got here, but there was a big explosion afterwards. And now you see it prevalent, more prevalent now in Atlanta than ever before. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I, I remember the uh, former director of the Amistad Research Center here in New Orleans, uh, Dr. Kara Olage. Um, she used to always talk about being at Spelman, you know, back in the day. And, you know, it was Chicago students, HBCU students that brought, you know, house music to Atlanta. And, you know, and also queer culture. We cannot, you know, forget about LGBTQ community. It's Black LGBTQ and Puerto Rican LGBTQ community Absolutely. in Chicago. Um, we, you know, I can remember going to Medusa's, the warehouse, you know, trying to sneak into uh, Dejois, use it by friend's 21. ID. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It was CLDs. amazing time. <laughs> right. And it brought all of Chicago together, you know, and it was it, it like you said, you know, it didn't matter if you were Latin King, Blackstone, Ranger, you know, Vice Lords, everybody was in they're housing all night long, you know, jacking your body all night long. It, w- it was just the w- the way it was. And 
I would like to find out just what, you know, what were some of the reasons that you think that a lot of African-Americans have left the South side of Chicago and specifically, you know, have moved to the South or to the West in places like Phoenix and, you know, other places in the West? Because I don't think enough people are talking about this huge um, migration back to um, other places, back to the South specifically, but it, also to the West. Well, one thing in Chicago is that, you know, we've um, we lost a, a bit of our own culture uh, in the south side of Chicago. And when I'm saying that, I'm saying the community itself, where these epicenters of food and church um, have been lost and have been moved. Uh, and we've priced ourselves out of a lot of our own communities. Uh, I was recently there and went on 79th and, and Cottage Grove and it looked like a des- the most desolate part of Chicago that I've never seen before. I know. I'm, it's I, sad. I, you know, I've never seen it where that Chatham area was thriving. Uh, where mm-hmm. There's Chatham Bowling Alley right there, and, and the banking centers were, were right there. So one thing that we, we have uh, been living uh, in this country, and it's, and it's really shown itself in the South Side, is the shame of, of things that, that we were once told were menial labor. And I can use cooking as a perfect example of that because cooking um, what used to be domestic work. It was called domestic work. It's classified as domestic work. And then in the 1970s, and Joe Randall can speak on this way more than I can, but I'm using what he taught me about it, is that when it became a white collar job, that means that all the people of European and other descent then started going to those jobs. But we thought it was shameful for us to continue those jobs because because the poverty that was associated with it. And so what we have to really do is really start changing our own narrative uh, and telling these stories that, first of all, soul food is not fattening. Soul food is, is 95% vegetables. We couldn't even afford meat. You know, so so let's understand that, you know, those things like that. Fried chicken is a preservation method. You know, you don't have to do it that way. And actually, my grandmother, she broiled more catfish than she did fried catfish. You know, so we have to start telling these intricate stories of our neighborhood. And then we have to get back to farming. We have to get back to to farming in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities and have our own farmers markets and things like that, because we have to provide these kids with fresh food. If they don't know what a fresh tomato tastes like, you know, or a fresh peach or, or or go into the store and all they see is cut up watermelon, they don't even know what a watermelon looks like, so they can't even pick a watermelon, then we're not, you know, uh, making new generations of what we call foodies right now that will actually go back into our neighborhood and open up more restaurants. And I just want to say, you know, like um, on the expressway um, or interstate as some folks call it, you know, there's, um, I think it's by diversity. There's a huge um, banner um, that has like a painting of the Pullman porters. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the labor, the, um, you know, waiters on the Pullman porters, the servers, um, those who were in some of these prestigious hotels in Chicago, which is one of the reasons why my family left um, New Orleans. You know, they were listed as cooks and then they moved, you know, to uh, Chicago to work in the hotels. Right. Those were good paying jobs and they were unions. They were strong unions and they were one, especially the Pullman porters with um, 
A. Philip Randolph, he was, you know, able to organize, was one of the most powerful labor unions in the country. A lot of people talk about Jimmy Hoffa, but they also mm-hmm. forget about A. Philip Randolph, who was able to organize black, um, you know, men to vote, to um, help, you know, those who are being lynched in the South and, you know, re um you know, get out the South and move to places like Chicago. And this network, you know, this train, you know, this transportation, and there's a scene in Malcolm X movie where, you know, you see Malcolm X working as a Pullman porter and as as a server. Although, you know, it was, you know, they had to deal with a lot of racism, but they were very powerful and it, it was a good job at the time. And I just wonder, you know, what would have happened if they would have still kept the union going. But that was also a, an American, um, you know, problem because they didn't want labor unions and every, they've done everything they possibly could to push unions back. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one more thing that I, that I, I, really failed to mention about, you know, the South Side of Chicago that is really uniquely important to understanding um, the pretense of behind it is that uh, we didn't all uh, go to the same type of high schools, you know, nor did we all go to the same type of colleges uh, and universities that we have more diversity in our educational system than we do now, where everyone does not, you know, belong in college, but they do belong in vocational training, you know, to places like, you know, people talk about DeVry, you know, as, you know, in when it started in the 80s, but DeVry put a lot of, of, of Black families into tech in the early, right. in the early ages, you know, with CVS, um, where you can actually learn woodworking and carpentry and being an electrician and things like that. So you did not have to go to college in order to do so. So there's some educational reform that we have to, you know, to really talk about in our own community where you see a person like DeSantis in Florida who is trying to erase that history. But we also have to talk about other options for our kids to go and not say that college bound is, is the only way to be successful when our history has shown that that was not the only way to be successful, that we had all these other ways of doing so. And cooking was a big part of of that success story uh, uh, that we need to revitalize in our own community. Absolutely. And, you know, so all of these, you know, hundreds of thousands of black folks have been, you know, left Chicago um, due to a lot of reasons, you know, like you said, the beginnings of gentrification, this, you know, plan to basically, you know, um, take the South side back. Right. Um, and, you know, opportunities elsewhere. Um, Maynard Jackson, the former mayor of Atlanta, had a lot to do with that. Just, you know, really, you know, helping to build this um, black middle well, most class. Most people may not know that, you know, it says Jackmont Hospitality, but Jackmont is actually started by Maynard Jackson. Uh, that's who, uh, mm. you know, who I'm culinary director for, but that was actually started by Maynard Jackson. Wow. 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 Um, and, you know, so a lot of black folks moved to Atlanta, which is, you know, in a lot of ways called the Mecca. And you were there, you know, during the, you know, that mass migration of people from all over, you know, to, to help build uh, the Atlanta that we see today. 
what what was it like, you know, and, and how did you um, start building your empire? Because, you know, you have built an empire. And I don't know if our listeners know that or not, but I want you to talk about that. Well, I can tell you one thing. Traffic was a lot different when I first got here. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the first thing. You know, it was 1.9 million people here when I got, uh, first got here. It's about 6.1 right now. Uh, so, hmm. so you can understand that you have uh, 200% growth in, you know, in, that, in that time period. Um, but what it was, was that uh, people do not understand the culinary history of Atlanta, that at one point in time, there was four master chefs and one master pastry chef here in Atlanta. And there is, that is the only city in the world to ever have four, uh, hmm. you know, including a master pastry chef. Uh, as well. That was unheard of. And Atlanta was the epicenter for that. And one reason why the Olympics got here is because of the legacy of the food culture in here because of the master chefs that, that, that were here um, as, as, as well. But also, you know, what was great about coming to Atlanta was that there was opportunity uh, and there was uh, undying support from our elders who wanted us to have a pathway to success and who always uh, still to this day are looking to mentor uh, our community in developing better ways to operate and navigate. I, I would say that the city is oversaturated with entrepreneurs, uh, in my opinion, right now, because, oh, well, let me rephrase that, the wrong type of entrepreneurs, meaning that gotcha. everyone here is an entrepreneur, everyone here has an LLC, but all these LLCs are not hiring more people. They're like single, you know, LLCs, you know, hiring one or two employees. We need to have a more robust uh, um, center for more jobs and more job creations by the LLCs and, and jobs that me or the entrepreneurs that we're making. But really what's also great about Atlanta is that in its expansion that, you know, through the works of Maynard Jackson in the beginning and others um, who have, have done so, that these opportunity zones are still there uh, for minorities of all ilk to go into the community and open up uh, uh, different business enterprises, and they incentivize you to also hire more employees. I mean, I'm working on a grant right now for Soul Food and Culture um, in, in order to move locations into a bigger location so we can actually hire more employees. Uh, I mean, that is a, a great, you know, business model, business plan to have, because if we don't do these things and continue uh, uh, hiring and being a part of the community, then others are going to come in and do it for us. And right. so, you know, we know things about racism. We know things about historical um, um, downtrodden, uh, just vulgar and deplorable things that happen to us as a community. But we also know that our community has always risen above that. And we did that by working together and first becoming a, a better close-knit community. And that's one thing that I believe Atlanta is now discovering is that we still need to tighten our community a little bit more because there are so many influences and outside sources coming in, into uh, all the urban areas. And they're not pushing people away in the sense that it's so blatant. But again, if you have a, a person who is 65 or 70 who is not working anymore and they are on a fixed income and all of a sudden their property taxes go up you know, tenfold, which is happening every single day, then how do you expect them to stay in their home? 
So either right. they take out a reverse mortgage or they end up losing their home or they're selling their home or, or they can't pass that home down to the next generation. Then that's where, you know, the subtle effects of gentrification starts. And then you have someone come in with a whole bunch of money and then they can buy the entire community. So it is yeah. systematic in the sense of racism, but you have to really get into the fine details to know that you know, there's ways to overcome that by making sure that we have long lasting legacies of people who can afford the home, even after our elders pass away. Very true. And, you know, I'm, I'm also excited to see in Atlanta, uh, just how, you know, there's more urban farmers, you know, um, it's, it's exciting to see so many people growing. And I think I saw an Amazon uh, show that came out. I think it's called Homegrown. I can't remember the name of it. Forgive me. Um, but I love to see the lushness and, you know, and, and how um, people like, you know, uh, the famous pit master out in uh, Atlanta, Brian Furman, and, you know, just everybody yeah. just working together. It's, it's, it's an exciting food industry that's happening in Atlanta. And I'd love for you to talk more about the Jack Mont, you know, your, your restaurant group. And I think you said you opened 36 uh, restaurants. Yes. This year. Uh, yeah. So, you know, so a little bit of history about Jack Mont. So, you know, Mayor, Mayor Jackson, of course, was the mayor of, of, of Atlanta. And he understood that, you know, in order to have more enterprising, we have to go into more places. And with the airport, the airports are, you know, have, you know, barely big uh, tenants like Delta, American Airlines, and you have food providers uh, for these concourses like the HMS host and, and places like that. But there is no way that a person uh, like in a single restaurant or a few restaurants can get to, into the airport, could afford to even build into the airport. So he helped develop a national program called Disadvantaged Business Enterprise or DBE. And now these major companies are required to have a certain percentage of their uh, work to be DBE um, or a disadvantaged business enterprise. And, and through the works of the CEO now, who is uh, uh, Daniel Halpern, uh, who has done tirelessly work in, to make sure that we can expand this company, uh, now we are expanding into uh, further markets of Philadelphia, D.C., Baltimore. Uh, we're going to look at places like JFK and things like that. And we have to open restaurants in every single of those locations. And you know, to give you a little bit briefly on the history of how this works is that, you know, you usually get a package of restaurants that you're responsible for. And so we have a good you know, amount of package of restaurants that we have to do. So in our sense, we have about uh, 26 restaurants to open in 38 to 40 months. So that is a tall task. So anyone who's listening um, and you're in that area and you're in the culinary or you're in the front of the house, uh, you need to a job. Uh, make sure you get in touch with me through Zella because we are definitely hiring for those locations. Absolutely. And I know, you know, I'm definitely going to, uh, you know, if you can send me that link just so I can uh, help, you know, and let 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 the community know. And I definitely want to know, let, you know, some of our students who are graduating know. And, you know, we'll talk on off air about uh, possibly doing some type of partnership or something. We've been talking about that for years, but I want to. Yes, I, I think the opportunity is there right now than ever, more now than ever before. Absolutely. OK, bet, <laughs> bet, like we say in Chicago, bet. <laughs> So, you know, what's, you know, what's coming for Todd Richards? I mean, I know, you know, I'd love for you to talk about part two, soul part two. 
Well, you know, I have a new book. Um, I think the publishing date, uh, release date is going to be fall of 2023, which is a, a really a great time to uh, release a book. Uh, hopefully I won't be as crazy busy as, well, that's not true. I'm always, I'm always busy. You're you know? always busy. Wait <laughs> right. a minute. <laughs> right. But, you know, it, it's really, uh, I really want to start in West Africa and really tell the story of the food and how it got here and how did it expand across the country and also show that, that you know, black and brown skins are not a monolith, that, that we are have a strong diversity in the ways that we cook and that the migrations, um, you know, we took something to the migrations, uh, to the places that we went to, and now we're bringing things back uh, from those places and incorporate it into our everyday cuisine, such as items like, you know, mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes is a Midwest thing, and now you see them more in Atlanta than you used to see in soulful places than, than ever before. So, you know, I really want to do the do that. Uh, I'm also uh, picked up another crazy art uh, painting, so I am starting to do a lot of painting uh, as as well. I finished okay. my, my second and third piece right right now. Uh, the first okay. piece is not leaving the house; uh, it's already on the wall. It's been confiscated. I was trying to make a little. See, you're gonna have to send me a picture of it. I want to <laughs> yeah. see this artwork, Picasso. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, there's heroes that I always look to, like Gordon Parks, you know, for inspiration, um, uh, you know, who uh, was a super creative person uh, that always still instilled himself in community, though, and and understanding that, you know, all these things are expression, uh, but expression without community is just simple, you know, lines on a paper. Um, and I wanted to make sure that anything I do is uplifting our community and, Absolutely. and you don't have to uplift your community by shunning others. And that narrative, uh, um, of destruction of that destructive way is no, uh, more needed in our country, uh, that my community, I'm proud of my community, uh, and I'm proud of your community because I'm proud of my community. And that the food that we eat, um, uh, we sit and share at the table, gives us a platform to discuss uh, ways to solve intricate problems that we both are having. Um, it's just that you have more opportunity to fix yours faster than I can fix mine. And I need to be a part of the solution to solve that. Mm. I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope the you know, our listeners meditate on Todd's words, you know, such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. And I'm so happy and thankful and grateful for our friendship. And that, you know, you, um, you know, suggested for me to launch my podcast. Um, I just, I'm so grateful to you for that. And just being a friend in this industry. Well, you know, the thing is, is that we need more voices. And, um, and, we, you know, the podcast is a great way to tell our story. And you made a, a statement before about what happened to the recipes, what happened to the photographs when these places close. And the great thing about you starting your own podcast and me having one is that this is permanent. This is recorded. When we write books, those things are permanent. They are recorded. And our history is no longer going to be relegated to a perceived notion of a pinch of this and a pinch of that. We actually do write recipes. You know, we actually do uh, take photos of our food. Uh, we actually do have long uh, lasting legacies of cooking and that uh, we're not only the educated, we are the educators of the educated. What makes it even more important to make sure that we develop our uh, communities even further. Indeed, indeed. And, and, you know, I think about just, you know, this, it's always been us wanting to build 
you know, generational wealth and pass it down to each generation so it gets better. And, you know, what you're doing is, you know, incredible. Um, And I want more people to know about the work that you're doing because I know that, you know, you're needed in this industry, especially, you know, your knowledge of, you know, different cuisines, your, you know, the diversity that you came from in Chicago, how you incorporate music, your history, your family history. I mean, it's, it's pretty exciting, you know, and I, I want to encourage people to follow you. How can they follow it. you on Instagram? Well, you always follow me on all social media, Chef Todd Richards. Uh, I would say that if you want to get in touch with me, you can always do so uh, through one of those uh, DMs. I, I, I will, you know, usually pretty accessible to get there. Um, if I don't get right back to you, it doesn't mean that I haven't heard you. I'm just like, trying to create the right space to get back to you. And and you know, all the listeners are going to tell you that Zella is going to be a force in the podcast world. Ah! Uh, um, it's, it's so good. <laughs> For me to be able to to pass the torch on to 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 someone else. Uh, hopefully, I will get back to my show soon. But I I'm not uh, too frightful that no one's going to be listening because you're going to be on the airways. See, I need you to do. I need you to make me a, a little intro, a Chicago oh, of house course. Uh, intro. Of course, you know, <laughs> anytime, anytime. All right. I, I want to see all the vinyls and the uh, the Romare Beardy paintings. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, we will be back and thank you all for joining Culture and Flavor. Culture and Flavor is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.